You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. Because it's time to remember some years, and you remember the year Gary Payton got traded, two thousand three. So let's start there. Uh, so. As we mentioned a couple years ago, I had started the Keep Gary Payton group to try to uh, keep Gary Payton from getting traded. Uh, by this point, uh-huh. I was working for the Sonics as an intern. So it's the 2003 trade deadline. The Sonics are 22-30 and 30 at the time of the trade. Gary's going to be a, a free agent at the end of the season. He's been asking for a max contract and is an extension. Had just played his 1,000th game as, as a Sonic. But uh, So that morning, I went into the Sonics. Uh, how, how old is he at the time? Uh, around 32, I think, maybe a little older than that. 30, 32 is what I was going to guess, yeah. <clears throat> oh, no, he was much much older than that, as it turned out. He was uh, 34, was going to turn 35 that summer. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so that morning, I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm in the Sonics offices, um, waiting around to see if anything happens at the trade deadline, which happens at noon Pacific time, and I don't hear anything. So I'm like, all right, I guess we're not not having any trades this year. And uh, I get on the bus and go back to the UW and go to my class that afternoon. I forget what class it was. And I don't know anything has happened until I stop in the uh, in the like I was I was majoring in business and I stop in like the business school lobby and they had a couple of computers in there and I go on to try to go on to soniccentral.com to see what people are saying and the site is crashed and I'm like oh <laughs> shit it's like after you post a podcast right it's very similar yes yes <laughs> Because they were still hosted at SonicCentral.com. And then I find out the Sonics have traded Gary Payton, and I've got like five minutes until my next class. I just went to the next class, which in hindsight was a wow. terrible decision. I don't know why I did it. Pelton cast, come on! I didn't learn anything in that class that helped me. I could have gone to the Gary Payton, the press conference announcing the trade, and somehow I missed out on it. <laughs> Do you remember where you were and you found out about the trade? I think Jan might have informed me really dour. <laughs> it was like, I'm sure I had no idea who the Ray Allen was. Yeah, probably not. She doesn't I'm know that in, many players. I've gotten in the car thing. I, I really not like one of those things where I remember where I was when it happened, though, definitely. So the Sonics traded Peyton and Desmond Mason to the Bucks for Ray Allen, Flip Murray, Kevin Ollie, and a 2003 first-round pick. Now, a few years ago around the trade deadline... They got back a first-round pick in this trade? They got a, a, back a first-round pick. So a few years ago, we did <laughs> retro trade oh grades God. at the trade deadline and did this one, and I think we did the Kemp trade. And uh, this was a really terrible trade for the Bucks. I thought it was amusing. There was a couple weeks ago, for some reason, this came up. Maybe it was the anniversary. It must have been the anniversary of it. I was watching the Bucks game that night, and their broadcaster, Jim Paschke, who has been there for decades, including this trade, was like so unhappy about this trade. And for some reason, it made me very happy how unhappy he was about this trade. Because, like, for the I Bucks mean, standpoint, it, been. It, was a, it was a horrendous trade. They traded Ray Allen, maybe their best player since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, for a guy who was about to be a free agent at Desmond Mason. And they gave up the first-round pick. That is wild. Who did that first-round pick turn into, do we know? That was a young man named Luke Rittenauer. Oh, look at that. Yeah, so they had the two picks in the Rittenauer-Carlson draft. Well, also, not only did they swindle the Bucks out of Ray Allen, but also the Sonics got two players who helped set them up for the best season that they had in the post-Kent Payton area. Yeah. Uh, so a couple other things about this trade that stand out in memory. The next game for the Sonics, the night after... You know who they were hosting? The Milwaukee Bucks. The Milwaukee Bucks. None of the players played in the trade because Ray and, and the other Bucks players had to fly back to Milwaukee to get their stuff uh, before coming back to Seattle permanently. Uh, there was a press conference before the game on Friday night with Desmond Mason is a visiting player. Still one of the stranger press conferences I have ever attended. A very forlorn Desmond Mason. 
He was quite upset about it. I would say that Desmond Mason to this day is quite quite upset about this trade. I think so. I mean, he had like famously, you know, gone to dinner with Howard Schultz previously. They were very tight, and that was the difficult thing for Schultz about this trade. He was happy to get rid of Peyton because they had clashed so much uh, over Peyton's desire for a new contract. And but it, for him, it was giving up Desmond Mason. That was the tr- tough part of the deal. I mean, and for Katie too. Thanks. Uh, we love Desmond Mason. Like we were sad to see Desmond Mason go. I, I feel like that really was for a lot of people the hardest part of the trade because we'd already we'd seen. I don't. I don't think that was the old. hardest part of the trade. Like people flipped out about this trade. That crazy thing is like at the time in Seattle. Yes, I don't think we recognized you. Definitely did. So I was a little bit more informed by you. Right. I don't. White got how much of a swing this is. I even like Kevin Ollie, you know, like yeah. even Flip Murray, like had some good years on the Sonics. Well, like, we'll get Flip, Flip Murray. Murray was, he would probably, I, I, this, I'm sure this is wrong, but like he might have been better on Sonics than Desmond Mason was on the box. <clears throat> I, it's the, hard to replacement level was better than either one, of them. What replacement level was by the, better than either of them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the I, so there there was a story. Steve Kelly, I think at the time no, was it was not, right. It was not Steve Kelly. For it many years, I thought it was Steve Kelly who had written this. Who wrote it? It was Dave Boland of the News Tribune. Would you like me to quote this article, please? I went back and and many. Uh, it's not something I've published, but I went back and found it for a piece I wrote. Don't discount this possibility, he wrote. Gary Payton may still be in the league when Ray Allen has retired. As it turned out, Allen outlasted Payton by a mere seven seasons. And multiple championships. Both ended up in Miami. Both finished their careers in Miami, funny enough. It really is. I, I just think there was something about where, because of what we were talking about with Kevin Payton, they just people's brains broke. <laughs> right? It's like, if there's somebody who you love as a player and you've seen them play very well, you just can't comprehend that maybe something else would be better on the court. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I did the, the Keep Gary Payton Foundation, but once I actually, like, got over the shock of the trade, I was pretty excited about this trade. Fans are always terrible at this shit. <clears throat> but, like, I mean, Ray Allen is... It's weird where he sits as a Sonic because they never reached any like super great heights with Ray Allen, but we liked him a lot. Oh yeah, right. Like Ray Allen is a—he's a really interesting figure as a player because of where he ended up playing after and kind of what he would achieve there. Also, just like being a player who is maybe a decade ahead of his time and what he was doing. He was a superstar who was a great shooter, like. He had the college thing. Like Rayon was awesome. He's fucking. He got game. Like it was, it was very cool. That we got the chance to watch Rayon play for a few years. Definitely one and of my favorite was, players to cover. Like when he would shoot a three, it's like you assume it's going in. So Rayon's first game as a Sonic was not that Milwaukee game. Again, two nights later, the Sonics played in L.A. against the Lakers. Ray in that game is one assist shy of a triple double. <laughs> fourth game of his Sonics career against the Lakers at home in a 17-point win. This is the three-time defending champion Lakers with Kobe Bryant. Goes for his, I, I don't know if it was his first career triple-double, but he didn't have many. He had 29, 10, and 10 in that one as the Sonics beat the Lakers by 17 points. He was not a, he would have been farther off on the rebounds. He wasn't like a traditionally great passer either. Right. I mean, that was the shocking thing. It's like we knew this guy was an amazing shooter and scorer, but he came to Seattle and he showed more versatility than I think any of us expected. And that was partially because, so the Sonics traded a point guard for a shooting guard. They played Kevin Ollie off the bench, but they shifted to a backcourt where it was Brent Berry and Ray Allen is two kind of traditional shooting guards. God, and they dude. Just... Is it Brent Berry and Ray Allen playing in a backcourt in 2019. That team is competing for the championship. <clears throat> I don't know. Do they have Jerome James as their center? <laughs> they have Kelvin you don't Bay. have a center it's 2019 that's it's 2020. true the, you do not have the position Jerome James in 2020 is not in the NBA well I think he's probably still in the NBA but he's, he's not not starting 
the, the Knicks still would pay him. So the Sonics went 17 and 12 with Ray Allen in the lineup. We were very excited about that. But we got to go back a little bit in 2003 to talk about what I described on Twitter is the number one thing I was excited to remember. And let's remember oh some years. I was so worried at first because I didn't realize. I didn't quite remember the exact timing of the seasons that this player played with the Sonics, whether it was in 2003 or not, but then I found out it was. And that, of course, is Peja Drobniak's Maniacs on SuperSonics.com. Are you responsible for this? No. it was The wheels were already in motion for Drobniak's Maniacs before I got to the Sonics as an intern that fall. Uh <laughs> So I, I don't know, like, the link is in the post note. You just got to gotta go there. But it was just, I, I don't even know, how, how do you explain Drobniak's Maniacs? It, it really was like, I, I have to say, a lot of things that NBA teams do are years behind culture, yeah. right? Like, really imitating culture and just being like, how can we take a meme that's Hello. already existing and apply it to us? To and you're just like, dog, come this fucking terrible. Okay. Right? And the standards are so low for professional athletes and for professional sports teams for quote-unquote humor. And I'm not saying that Dromniak's Maniacs was, like, hilarious, but I feel like it was a pretty ahead of its time. Yeah. In the meme factor, it was like, also, like, just kind of were, like, it, it anticipated like weird Twitter. Cheeseburger, but 2003. Yeah, it anticipated weird Twitter to me. Like, nowadays, you know, these kind of segments of fans exist out there who are making these kind of jokes. But, you know, it's like a handful of people. It's not on yeah, the team it, website. It was very NBA desktop, right? It was, yeah. it was very RNBA. Like, being into Peja Dromniak, all this shit that did not yet exist. I mean, there were message boards in 2003, right? On Sonic Central. But, <laughs> yeah, you were responsible for some of them. But I, I feel like uh, the Sonics definitely kind of captured lightning in a bottle there. Also, Peter Drobniak, who, like, he was, he had some moments as a player. I remember liking him a little bit. Just, like, this human being is a professional athlete. His body. <laughs> oh, Peja. Oh, man. Uh, incredible. <laughs> So the one thing I will take credit for for Drobniak's Maniacs is uh, I I was the one who was responsible for finding the email for Bill Simmons on the Page Two website back in the day when he was the sports Sport guy. Thirty three or whatever. Yeah, I don't okay. think we even so listed the email. email. I think it was like a bo- one of those boxes where you sent the email, you know, that sort of thing. And I made sure that we emailed Simmons to make him aware of Drobniak's Maniacs. So when that was a link on Page Two. That was my greatest accomplishment as a Sonics employee. It was a link on page two where it was just up there? I mean, Simmons, I think, was at that point doing like a once or twice doing a list of like link, favorite links on the internet. And that was wow. one of them. So There you go. Congrats. It was on Inside the NBA. Like, Drop the X Media X was actually kind of, a, it won a ton of advertising awards for Wong Dude, who is the, uh, the advertising group behind it. Oh, Wong Dude did it? Yeah. Wow, I'm kind of impressed. Yeah. So thankfully, I, I thought I it was off like, the internet, but it, the archive.org still has the main page from Wong Duty. You can't go in. You, it doesn't seem like the any of the uh, pages inside are uh, archived, but the main page you can still get to in here. Victory for Sonics. Okay. <laughs> also, there were T-shirts. Loved those T-shirts. There were what? T-shirts? T-shirts? Oh, the Dromniacs Maniacs T-shirts. Oh. I think I, I might have wanted one, but never actually got one. I Wow. I really <laughs> let, let you down on that one. Yeah, you really did. Okay, so we've got some more uh, Sonics content from 2003. Okay, that, tell, tell us about, additionally, about three beyond the Sonic. Is that is that it on the Sonics? No, no, we've got more Sonic Sonic because that was all the 2002-03 oh. season. But some exciting things happened in the 2004 part of the season as well. So the Sonics started really? that season in Japan, playing against the Clippers. Oh, yeah. So that the first the game, was 50-point game. The first game was at 2.30 a.m. Pacific time on uh-huh. a Thursday night, apparently. And my vivid memory of this is that... Uh, uh, Brian Robinson, who would later go on to uh, save our Sonics fame and uh, now does the Sonics Rising website, 
and he and I were friends off of these message boards. And so we together tried to go into the Sonics office and watch the game because it was it wasn't on local TV anywhere. And so we get there at two thirty in the morning, and it turns out the game is blacked out at the Sonics offices. And <laughs> just have to go back home, and I listen to that game on the radio at again two thirty in the morning. You uh, might have a problem. I was working for the team. Like I needed to find out what was happening. It was a they strange time. Maybe helped you figure it out. You would think. <laughs> Instead of putting it on you to be like, figure it out, kid. So the next game was it? The next game was like on an afternoon on a Saturday, and that meant it was Friday, which was Halloween actually at 7 p.m. Pacific time. Great start time for TV, and that's where Richard Lewis goes for 50 points. Wow! So this we're both against the Clippers, right? This is like yeah, the The Q Rich Clippers, pretty fun Clippers team too. Uh, a, a Clippers team that was starting, by the way. Peja Dromniak and Chris Wilcox were their starting front court. Wait, really? Peja Dromniak? Yeah, he went to the Clippers that next season. Alton Brand apparently missed wow. that game due to injury. Uh, Ray Allen was injured at the start of the season, and that opened the door for a little something we like to call Flip Sanity. There we go. Flip Sanity. Flip Maurice, over the first 11 games of the season, his replacement for Ray Allen in the starting lineup, averaged 23.9 points per game on 50% shooting and 39% from three. And that wow, was so he was actually playing well. I was wondering oh, yeah. that in hindsight. Like, was he just was he shooting a ton and we didn't remember it? Was it a no, volume was situation? Good. But no, he was actually playing well. And then wasn't good at all the rest of his Sonics career. I, whatever. Like, it was worth it was worth getting Flip Murray at Shaw University, right? Yes. Shaw University. Uh, Shaw's finest, Flip Murray. Wow. And then Chris Wilcox. When did we trade for Wilcox? Uh, not until 2006 trade deadline. So oh, we'll get wow. that on episode on 2006. Okay, so that's that was a lot on the Sonics, but it deserved it. 2003 was a big year for the Sonics. It really was. Uh, so the Seahawks. So they that's the finally year. break. Go ahead. Yeah, 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 that's the year they get back to the playoffs. They finally finally break through in the Holmgren era, right? And finally make the playoffs. Matt Hasselbeck has reclaimed the starting job. Starts all 16 games, throws for nearly 4,000 yards that season, 26 touchdowns. Sean Alexander scores. terms, is like 8,000 yards. Yeah. Sean Alexander scores 14 touchdowns on the ground. Really explosive <laughs> offense. So the Seahawks make it back to the playoffs as a wild card team and go on the road to face the Green Bay Packers in the first round. And of course, this is. That we want the ball and we're gonna score a game. God, oh, I remember this. we were sitting on we had those giant blue couches in the living room, uh, and I remember like it was on a Saturday, right? No, I think it was Sunday morning. No, it was, was Sunday it morning. Sunday morning. I remember just like waking up and we just I lounged on those couches. I was on the long one. You were on the short one across from me, and we just laid there the entire time and then just. Get, like one of the you know those things where you're like you get more and more as the game goes on because I don't think we expected to win and then we reached this point where it was like oh we're gonna win this game well I don't know about that but the Seahawks tied the game with 51 seconds left after the Packers had gone ahead with a score with 244 left so a thrilling conclusion to regulation of this wow. game man I remember none of that but <laughs> no, I do neither. remember <laughs> when when the coin when the coin toss happened. And Mahas says that we want the ball and we're going to score. I'm pretty sure we high five. Like we stood up and we were just like, Let's oh, I'm go. very excited. Which also, like, I don't remember just... watching this game at home. I remember watching it at the house I was sharing with the famous cousin Katie and our third roommate. Really? Yeah. No, you were definitely there with me. Hmm. Uh, by the way, Ryan Longwell missed a 47 yard field goal at the buzzer. So there could have been like a uh, uh, Seahawks Falcons end of this game, but there wasn't. Scary. But but what he said that anybody in hindsight who's like we were not for this, every single oh. Seahawks fan on earth was fired up when he said that. It was just like yes, it's like he embodied exactly what we were thinking, and we wanted the ball, and we were going to score. 
Like, when you have an offense like that, you expect it to score. So the Seahawks actually went three and out on their first possession of this. Green Bay followed with three and out of their own. I remember this being the first possession. Me too. It was still pretty early. Uh, Then the Seahawks had matriculated the ball to their own 45, had a third and 11 when Hasselbeck's pass two. Do you remember who was it targeted to? Daryl Jack. No, no. It's always the key passes are always to special teamers and like number four (laughs) wideouts. So in this case, it was Alex Bannister, who also caught a pass on oh, Alex the previous Bannister. drive. And do you recall who intercepted the pass? I don't remember that either. Al Harris. Al Harris. I took it to the house. 52-yard return to end the game. We wanted the ball, and we were going to score. Still on balance, an exciting season for the Seahawks. Left us feeling good about the future. Because uh, Holmgren was kind of in his job was in a little jeopardy at that point. Like he lost his GM job that year, which was a good decision. I mean, I think things got a lot better when he did lose the GM job. Yes, I would say that that that's when things really turned around for Yachts. Yes. Uh, not that he was a bad GM necessarily, but I mean, he still brought in Matt Haas. You know, like he he made some good decisions, but. Uh, Giving him the leeway to free up his mind is on coaching seemed to definitely help things out. Uh, but we will talk about those seasons in coming years. Yeah, he wasn't Bill O'Brien. Now, another important thing happened with relation to the NFL in 2003. And do you recall what that was? It was a little website. We moved to the... Oh, oh. A little... Well, yeah, the Seahawks... I believe 2002. I think it had happened the previous okay. season. A little website called Football Outsiders launched in 2003. Now, I first remember hearing about it when the Tuesday morning QB column by Greg Easterbrook, who I have not read in probably 15 years, went there after he was fired by ESPN. Uh, And, uh, like, my distinct memory of that year's playoffs in in 2004 is, like, reading the Football Outsiders previews informed by DVOA and being, like, like really understanding what was going to happen in football games for the first time and feeling, like, just... So, uh, so smart when I was like talking about football, the playoff games, including that year's Super Bowl. What was the Super Bowl? I believe that was the Packers or Panthers Patriots, I should say, Super Bowl. Okay. <clears throat> and we watched it at John Noach's house in Bellevue, right? Uh, Mercer Island, but yes. Or, or yeah, yeah, Mercer Island. And you kept being like, oh, you, I remember you were so obnoxious about it. Oh my oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> like all early stats people, you were like, oh, yeah, in the Football Outsiders preview, they said that this is going to happen. And I'm just like, I don't know, I'm just watching football over here, but you're on some other fucking level. You think that running backs don't even matter? Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I don't I mean, know if I had gotten there This was the first time that we, we had ever considered in 2003, I mean, you much more than me, but that we'd ever had any sort of like statistically inclined perspective about football. Yep. Were you interested? You were interested in basketball stats before then, right? Oh yeah, I was. I was writing basketball stats columns at this point. Oh well, great. Uh, but it, it definitely was pioneering. I mean, the initial. So, Football Outsiders debuted in two thousand three, or you just discovered yep. it in two thousand three? No, it launched in two thousand three. It was around probably a few months before I I discovered it. It's kind of incredible this off season where running backs have been maybe the I mean it, it happens more and more every year, uh, but this off season where you see somebody like Todd Gurley being released, uh, and that this website was basically launched to prove that running backs don't matter, and it's like 2020 the nerds have won people. Well, it was launched to prove that establishing the run didn't matter. That was I don't think even football outsiders went so far as to say running backs didn't matter at that point. I don't think anyone did yet. It, it was against the idea. It, there was a commentator in Boston or whatever yep. who was saying that the team needed to establish the run, and Aaron Schatz wanted to prove that point was wrong, that establishing the run does not matter. And he proved it. But 17 years later, we're still having the same fucking fight. <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> And even his Patriots drafted a running back in the first round decades <laughs> later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you the, football? The, the nerds will never win. Yeah. Well, we'll no, of. they they have Melvin Gordon's contract. They won. The reaction to Melvin Gordon's contract. Uh, UW football. This was the summer 
that Rick Neuheisel <gasps> got fired for his involvement as part of a group that won 12,000 in NCAA tournament pools in 2002 and 2003. That's what brought him down. I mean, the kind of insane. Also, that's a lot of money on NCAA tournament pools. I I gotta don't look this up. I forgot to look this up. I feel like Jack Sigma was also part of his team. Yep, yep. Another participant in his pool, Jack Sigma. Uh, Jack Sigma. I mean, the NCAA is just terrible. Like the idea that somebody was going to be fired from their job for participating in an NCAA tournament bowl is fucking ridiculous. I mean, I get the anti-gambling stance, but the NCAA—it's it's a lot. It's not even gambling. It's it's only in the most technical sense. So Neuheisel sued both UW and the NCAA for wrongful termination and eventually landed a $4.5 million settlement. There we the go. Two sides. Uh, so he, he got, uh, he got his last laugh in the end. The Huskies is somewhat similarly to what happened after Don James's retirement. Hastily promoted a coordinator. Oh God. In this case, offensive Ooh. coordinator, Keith Gilbertson, who had been a key contributor as coordinator to the, uh, the Rose Bowl team a few years earlier, but similarly was perhaps not well suited for the job of was head this, coach. So, but, but before then, this was future NCAA president, Mark Emmert, who fired no, Rick Neuheisel, right? No, this still is pre Yeah, this is still Barbara uh, Hedges at okay. this point. I think there's like two, because Todd Turner was between him and, him and Hedges. This is very early. Mark Emmert was not the athletic director. He was the he was the head of the college. Right, but okay, you're right. But that was during the Todd Turner era. This was still it wasn't Gerbert in. <laughs> I, I got a president scholarship. I feel like I should remember the president. <laughs> the president who gave you the scholarship. McCormick. Fuck. Fuck him. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it was like him personally. I don't think he oh like was God. reviewing the applications himself. <laughs> Still, that's pretty funny that you got a UW president scholarship, but you don't remember who the president was. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so the Huskies win into that season with a decent amount of uh, uh, hype that year, and they were getting a lot of Heisman buzz for Cody Pickett. There we go. That year. He completed the year he finished the year completing fifty seven percent of his passes for six point seven yards per attempt and fifteen touchdowns and thirteen interceptions. Wow. Oh boy. Was this the year that you gave him the nickname Heisey? That sure was. Oh my god. Uh Emmer did not take over until two thousand four. It was Richard McCormick was still the was probably still the president in two thousand three, although there was an interim president. I was gonna say because Emmer was the president when I was there. Uh, the Huskies, again, hyped, came into the season ranked number 17, lost 28-9 to in week one at number two, Ohio State, won their next three, but then lost at UCLA by 30 points and lost at home the next week to Nevada oh, boy. in a real tough loss. I'm sorry, I'm told the people there prefer Nevada, not uh-huh. Nevada. Uh, Finished that season six and six. They did beat number eight Wazoo in their final game of the season. Did they win the Northwest Championship? They did not. They did beat. That was the last time they beat Oregon, I think. Right until this year. Wow. Until oh no, I guess they did win the Northwest Championship. They won at number twenty-two Oregon State, thirty-eight seventeen. Northwest Championship winners dominated the Northwest. Could not beat anybody. They got that. They had the Big Data Bowl. They had everything that year. (laughs) Oh boy. Uh, so what were you? Oh my God! They, did not, they didn't play in a bowl game back then. The nickname was so there was Rick or, or Keith Gilbertson, whose nickname was "Who Made You Coach." I don't know if it was was that that season that he yelled "Who Made You Coach" at uh, Elise Woodward. It was that Elise Southland? Woodward. Elise Woodward I'm, asked him a semi-critical question. Whatever. Not even a critical question. <laughs> and he just goes, "Who made you coach?" Uh, that is such a God. The, the fucking. The the rain that college football and I'll say basketball college sports coaches have to just be indecent human beings is insane. But like and not not even having to actually worry about the media, like just ridiculous that you would think that that was an okay thing to do. But he, so he responds to Elise Woodward, who made you coach? There was Cody Pickett, who was Heisey. Who was it? Was it Craig Chambers or was it Reggie Williams? It was not Craig Chambers. Bright spot. We definitely wanted to free Craig Chambers. No, he wasn't on that team. 
he was eventually, he was later on. Eventually, we wanted to oh, yeah. Craig Chambers. We did eventually. Uh, I mean, Richie Williams was definitely a bright spot at 1,109 yards. Him and Charles Frederick uh, combined for almost uh, for about 1,900 yards, and then no one else on the team had more than 231 receiving the yards. The team should not have been that bad, though. No, they shouldn't have. They definitely shouldn't have. Was this what year did they have Joe Jarzinka's doing everything? That was oh, that was earlier. the late 90s. Yeah, okay. it was a totally different year. Uh, no, I mean that was it was a Gilbertson failure. I feel like how bad that team was. The Mariners, this was the last season, basically, that they were competitive at all. Uh, before the season, we, we technically did not, this technically happened in 2003, but we didn't mention it. They had traded Lou Pinella. There we go. To the Tampa Bay <laughs> Devil Rays. The only thing, I'm going to say, broadcaster trades are definitely number one of all the <laughs> yes, trades yeah. that I care about. Coach trades, though, pretty high up there. Do you recall who the Mariners got? Randy Wynn. Yeah, there you go. A pretty solid return, all things considered. Oh, hell yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. They did not make the playoffs ever again, so maybe it wasn't a solid return. Well, I mean, they were fine that season. They <laughs> to, finished, to the state. They finished three games out of the AL West, two games out of the wild card that year, and then were never seen again. Yeah, they have not made the playoffs since this happened. So I don't know if you could really say that it was a solid return. I don't think that was the reason. Lupinella hasn't been managing for, like, well over a decade, right? <laughs> and Randy Wynn's still a good player. <laughs> I'm just saying, well, <laughs> I think that a lot of other decisions are the problem, not necessarily just this one. I feel like it's been a lot more than, than a decade since Lupinella last managed. I've... I don't know. All right, the last sports thing that year is that uh, the Storm had a new coach, and Donovan came in, Hello. worked to get Lauren Jackson, who was coming into her third season, get her wow, in the post more. It's only been a decade. Yeah. Oh. Well, Bandage has managed a long time. Uh, and Lauren Jackson makes good, like, she'd been very solid player the first couple of seasons, but really takes it to the next level that year and wins MVP on a non-playoff team. Wow. The Storm went 18-16 and 16 that year with a, a really strong point differential. Subert also played like the entire year with a knee that was so bad that she needed microfracture after the season. So shout out as always to Sue Bird, who, <laughs> if there is ever a season, will be back on the court defying your cynicism last, <laughs> last May. Maybe, maybe I was prescient. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did not say anything about pandemics. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, all I got on sports. Uh, 2003 in music. We we talked about how bad 2003 was. 2002. We're 2002, 2002 was. We're so excited to talk about 2003. 2003 was an amazing fucking year. In every way. But, it's, I mean, especially in music, right? Like, what was your comment about Ben Gibbard? <clears throat> that he had two albums in 2003 that were better than just about any album in all of 2002. There it is. Which were the uh, the Postal Service's single album. Get up. And then Transatlanticism with Def Cab. I mean, like, really quite a year for Ben Gibbard. And kind of out of nowhere. I think the, the Give Up by the Postal Service, maybe after the Nirvana record that they have, is Sub Pop's best-selling record of all time. That's wild. You have Transatlanticism, which catapulted Death Cab for cutie from being an indie band into being a mainstream band i mean they'd signed to a major label after that record came out and it was like 2003 i mentioned that 2002 no bands put out their best record 2003 so many bands put out their best record and it's like it's stark how different it is in years where there's like things that are amazing on their own but also artists who it might not be the best thing that they've ever done, but still such high peaks, right? Like, you, you look through it, and I had started becoming much more interested in music at this point, and it was like, this is what I'm going to do by 2003. <clears throat> we have. Because you hadn't gotten the uh, songs called on bscable.com. You had moved on to music? Yes. Jay-Z, we got the CD, 
burned well actually this is the gray album right this was 2004 that the gray album came out yeah the gray album didn't come out until february 2004 okay so we had the black album end of november calendar year 2003 we'd gotten tower records was closing the one right by key arena got tons of cds when tower records closed this was huge the black album which we'd heard the gray album first and i was like fuck the black album i want to hear the gray album and then over time it was like actually Fuck the Grey album. No, no, no. The Grey album still still bangs, man. What are you talking about? It's great, but like the beats on the Black album are also excellent. Fuck the They're both very good. Like it has the single greatest rap song that has ever been recorded. And I will give it to Danger Mouse. Public service announcement. There's no no better rap song. That's it. It's number one. Wow, because I was going to say that I didn't even think the Black Album necessarily had the best Jay-Z song of 2003. What is that, some Linkin Park song? What are no, you talking Crazy about? in Love! Allow me to reintroduce myself. My I name mean, is Hove. There's no better line than that. Jeez, not... Ch- Dave Chappelle says it on the Chappelle show later on. You're Wait, just like... You're just going to take perfect. that over when I come back like Jordan wearing the 4-5? Oh, it's no. It, that still was going on Twitter the other day because of the fact that it was the anniversary of Jordan's double nickel. <laughs> when he came back like Jordan, where the four five Jay Z on the record that he retired as he was retiring please, was please rapping air about quotes. coming back. Please put air quotes around the retired. That's that is incredible. But public service announcement, excluding no songs ever is the number one rap song ever recorded. I paid so much fucking money in, like, 2000... Whenever I worked for The Storm, who knows what year it was, to go see Jay-Z in Vegas. The tickets were $200 for the show. Rihanna was in the house. Ciara was in the house, too, way before Russell Wilson. And... She hadn't been saved yet. (laughs) A young future was there as well. Um, The... It was like... I was going to see Jay-Z and the entire oeuvre, but public service announcement is what it's about that is the fucking track right it uh, for all of jay-z's career you hear the doom 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 and you just get chills it's like this is it here we go jay-z achieved perfection in that moment and danger mouse i'll give him credit had the wherewithal to be like this shouldn't be the track whatever on the black album seven or six or whatever he was like this is front and center number one on the gray album i mean danger mouse got me back into jay-z i was you know we mentioned a couple years ago that i was like oh jay-z sold out in like 2002 and then the gray album got me back in and have never left have never left yeah you should have listened to magna carta holy crap <laughs> well i think i own that on cd <laughs> Or the one that was automatically downloaded on your phone. Yeah, Public Service Announcement is track 10, as produced by Just Blaze. I give a lot of credit to Kanye beforehand. And Kanye did produce Encore for this record. But <clears throat> Public Service Announcement, that is it. Just Blaze and the good folks at Rockefeller Records. I mean, I'm not going to argue here. But, but also in 2002. Yeah, we have stuff like... 2003, the, still 2003. Or sorry, sorry, 2003. <laughs> Who even can keep track of these... Years, the issue. <laughs> uh, T.I. Trap music, right? We have Speaker Box and The Love Below. Yeah, you're just going to like throw that into the list? Fucking Speaker Box and The Love Below? You're I... just throwing that in? Hey, yeah, you're just like, no, that oh, also that happened. This was... I... That was like such a big album and song. It was huge. Hey, it was a hey, moment. It was huge. This is not, I, I'm just saying, this is not genre-defying Outcast. We talked a lot about Outcast in Let's Remember Some Years. This was I not tell ATL. A, I want to tell a story about this now. You have a like, story about it? Well, I mean, it's not really a story. But my defining memory is uh, of, at Sonic's games that season, like, every game at the same time they would play the song Roses like maybe like 45 minutes before the game because it was always the same playlist. And uh-huh. that would be like after I had been doing interviews pre-game and I would come back up to the to my computer in the 200 level to write something, I guess, and hear that song literally every game for the entire season, 41 times. 
So that is always what I will connect it with is that specific memory. On on that track, on Roses, because I feel like Hey On's like a fine song or whatever. The video with all of the different Andre 3000s throughout the years, right? Perfect. It is excellent. And then on the other side, it's like Andre had – he was full on in his Prince mode, right? This is the, the last real Outkast album, and even then it was sort of split between the two. Andre 3000 was about to basically go off in this space at this point. He was about to become like your great uncle Andre 3000 who you see in the coffee shop in Brooklyn. But like for a second he had it for a couple of perfect hits. And then on the other side, right, the, the speaker box side was like the first big boy solo album of which there were many to come, excellent solo album, many to come after that. The level is super high the entire way through, right? But then the two hits with The Way You Move and then Hey Ya, like, stood out above it. But, like, man, Roses. Okay, so the most liberal use of the Just Playing. <laughs> with under 3000 rapping i hope she's speedy on the way to the club trying to hurry up to get a baller singer or somebody like that trying to put on our makeup in the mirror and crash crash into a ditch and then he does the just playing it's like that is way too specific to throw in a just playing after andre fair you also have beyonce's solo debut putting destiny's child me right like a this was Beyonce from Destiny's Child. We were watching her in Carmen, a hip opera, and being like, oh, that's the girl from Destiny's Child. Flash forward to 2003, we've got the blackouts in New York happening that summer, the notable blackout that has as memorialized in Killing Yourself to Live by Chuck Klosterman. Yeah, I was going to say that I feel like my memories of 2003 are affected by the fact that he wrote that book during that summer and mentions a lot of this stuff in there, including notably Crazy in Love and how and it's the only song Crazy he wanted to love. listen to. Got the hottest chick in the game wearing my chain. That's right. Hove. I believe in the third verse, uh, Jay-Z compares himself to Golden State Warriors guard Nick Van Exel. There we go. Golden State Warriors guard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, 2003. I like that you you referenced his proper team for the time. I've I reread that section recently. <laughs> I have to find the the in preparation. To Nick Van Exel. I think it's like balling like Van Exel. Soprano, the ROC handle like Van Exel. Wow. Handle like Van Exel, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Also in two thousand three, though, where it's like. The the entire, like, indie movement is happening. Oh, so big year. I, I went to this. This is not this is not an indie show by any means. But I went to go see the White Stripes that year at the Seahawks Stadium Event Center. I think it was called maybe pre pre before theater. it was back before it was being used as a makeshift hospital. It was weird. Um seeing the white stripes after elephant came out basically like the the highest point that the white stripes ever achieved is elephant look michigan football would never be the same <laughs> after 2003 harbaugh heard that track right he was grad assistant at stanford or something and he was like oh this is this is big there was that I saw them at the CenturyLink Field or whatever. Sorry, the Seahawks Stadium Event Center with a little band called the Yeah Yeah Yeahs opening, who put out a little song called Maps in 2003. Great song. Should we be doing playlists for these years? Who has the time? Look, we've we've got busy lives. <laughs> I definitely have the time. I a playlist of every track that we talk about. All right, we'll we'll consider the options there. But also in that year, it's like we have the introduction to Jason Isbell on the record Decoration Day by the Drive-By Truckers. I know you don't care about this at all, uh, but I, for one, was actually paying attention to it. He joins the band, who is already an established band, and then has the name, the fucking title of the record, right? If you want to talk about people who burn hot like Sean Kemp, Jason Isbell in Drive-By Truckers, it was like this was a star for the entire time. So he joins the band. After they'd already put out multiple records beforehand, his song, Decoration Day, which may be the greatest song he's ever recorded, is the name of the record. Because if you're in the band before then and you're just like, shit, this new guy just wrote the best song that I've ever heard. We have to call the record this. 
this is way before he's winning Grammys or whatever, writing songs for A Star is Born. We have early albums from M83, Animal Collective, and you will notice by The Trail of Dead, Michigan by Sufjan. This started the 50 States Project, 48 to go. (laughs) It's not a good pace right now for Sufjan. I mean, the the Michigan album is one that, at the time, I had no idea was existing. I do feel like this was like... And, and everybody thinks whenever they paid attention to something, it was the heyday of it, right? Yeah. To me, this was like KXP's heyday. <laughs> so I think it was like 2005, I guess. Uh, you Did you even mention... so? We we mentioned the shins, right? Do we mention? Oh, we we've mentioned got, going we've to the got shins. Shoots too narrow. <clears throat> so they're, they're fighting, there's, fighting there's, in a sack. What was that? Fighting in a sack. We've got the first Kings of Leon record, which again I talked about getting CDs at Best Buy. I remember looking at it, five ninety nine at Best Buy. I was like, "There's this record called Youth and Young Manhood," and I was like, "Sure, I'll get it." And then hearing and being like, "Oh, this is like kind of like a Strokes ripoff band." Or whatever. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, they're the biggest band in the entire world. Uh, Dear Catastrophe Waitress, basically the comeback for Bell so and Sebastian, good. who eventually would become my favorite band, maybe one or two years later. Right? There's the Dizzy Rascal album, who there was the Streets the previous year, original pirate material came out, and then yep. Dizzy Rascal came out the next year. And I was just like, dude is going to be so famous before I realized that Americans don't want to hear British people rapping. There's the second Strokes album, Room on Fire. It's like 2003 has it all. It was just happening, man. Right? You wanted to talk about the lineup for uh, uh, okay, uh, Bumbershoot that year. This is a thing I want to do as we're remembering years each year. So a couple that I've missed. I'm going to go back two years. <clears throat> I think we should start in 2001, just super quick. I'm pretty sure this was the right year. The first ever time that I attended Bumbershoot as an adult, I went in 2001. Jan paid me to go because she wanted to go see Mark McGrath and Sugar Ray. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I remember just like sitting in the Memorial Stadium seats watching Sugar Ray and just being like, God, I kind of like these songs. <laughs> Just, like, so upset that I was, like... Because I was a brooding teenager at the time. I was, like, you know, I didn't want to hear it. I just want to fly. But then all of a sudden it came on, and I was, like, what I I really, really want. (laughs) 2002, I went with our Uncle Steve and saw David Lee Roth. I, I... I really knelt at the altar of David Lee Roth in 2002, which is a very strange time that the cock rock lead singer of Van Halen was headlining a Bumbershoot show because you look at the lineup the next year and there's no David Lee Roth on there. But it was like seeing David Lee Roth in 2002 definitely changed my life. 2003, I'd started to become a little bit more indie. I went on my own for the first time ever. I wasn't there with Steve. I wasn't there with Jan. I was there with friends, right? And I distinctly remember seeing... See, I thought this was a different year. We'll talk about this next year. Because Death Cab played the main stage in 2004, right before Mm. the presence of the United States of America. This year, though, was the first time that I'd ever seen Wilco before. I'd heard the name, but I was not in... I was not in 2003 listening to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, or 2002 listening to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It really started to permeate through culture because music again we talked about this before took a while to get out there this wasn't like it was instant and then it went away like people were buying cds itunes existed for the first time ever in 2003 so i remember watching wilco before seeing rem in 2003 and i was like man this rem band's pretty cool i was like (laughs) sort of familiar with a few of the hits but like got a little bit more you definitely knew end of the world as we know it. From no, I, I knew like a chunk. I was like, I'm going to college next year, and I know this is a college rock band, and everybody in college likes REM. This was before I'd ever heard Murmur or whatever. But like, I, I was like, I'm I'm a little bit interested in this. Saw Wilco for the first time ever. Thought they were kind of boring. Uh, I a, wow. pre, a pre-float on Modest Mouse. I remember watching them. I swear there was a year where I, I didn't see them on the poster, but it was 
Modest Mouse and Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth had just released the Murray Street record, which is like a comeback for them. And both of them played during the daytime. And I was like, oh, this is what noise rock is. (laughs) (laughs) Those are my main memories. Oh, and then I also went to, um, oh, God, Benaroya Hall. Is that what it was? Benaroya Hall to go see Donovan with Jan, (laughs) the mellow yellow guy. (laughs) Oh. The, Mr. Hurdy Gurdy Man. I remember respect going, on Donovan's name. I know. It was fucking awesome. I was just like, this is amazing. And th- this was a ritual that I would do every single year. Like, tickets were $15. And I would That's plan out, wild. like, exactly who I was going to go see throughout the day at Bumbershoot. This was such an important weekend for me. Whereas, like, I'm going to go discover all this music or whatever. Those were the main ones that I remember seeing that year. And then looking at the poster, it's like. Did you go to Macy Gray? I don't remember. I remember sort of that Macy Gray played. There was also Hip Hop 101 with Common, De La Soul, and Black Eyed Peas. Did not see it. Um, (laughs) I went to go see The Far Side. I think that was the next year. Um, And it's kind of funny seeing, like, deep down on the list, New Pornographers, who, again, would become one of my favorite bands after that. Uh, oh man, in the long winters. But th- this was that was and all. Brittany that I... Carlisle is like third row from the bottom. It's pretty wild. That's all that I really remember seeing from Bubbershoot 2003. We'll bring that back up in 2004, though. I look forward to this as a tradition. But we got to talk about. It. I mean, are we going to do? By the way, are we going to do our our friends at uh, HipHopGoldenEdge.com? Are we still in HipHopGoldenEdge? <laughs> How long is Hip Hop Golden Age? It's, it's right eternal. Now. Are we going to talk about this before we talk about Chappelle's show? Yeah, talk about that first, and then we'll, we'll get to get to TV. From our good friends at HipHopGoldenAge.com 2003. Oh, wow, we didn't even mention this one. Uh, from Rhyme Sayers Entertainment, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Brother Ali, Shadows on the Sun at number one. Wow. Little Brother, LB, The Listening, at number two. At number three, V. Vaughn, The Traveling Vaudeville Villain, Victor Vaughn. Mad Villain was not out yet. I had no idea who MF Doom was. Uh, but in hindsight, this was one that I started paying attention to. At number four, we have Cannabis, Rip the Jacker. At number five, I dropped a black album. Then I back out as the best rapper alive. Ask about me. Also, at number eight, 50 Cent, we didn't mention this earlier. This was a oh. phenomenon. I assumed you mentioned it. Get Rich yeah. or Die Try. In the club. Yeah. was uh, like You couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song. And we were like, Dre did it again. He he did it with Eminem. It was like, there's Dre, there's Snoop Dogg, there's Eminem, and now there's 50 Cent. And it was just like, Dre fucking did it again. We thought We thought 50 Cent was going to be the biggest rap artist of the next 20 years. Well, we didn't know that he was going to move on into acting. Really, quite quite a successful career for 50 Cent. <laughs> yeah. He's doing just fine for himself. Uh, anyway, 50 told me, go ahead, switch your style up. So, we should talk about Chappelle's show in 2003. We sure should, because it was a phenomenon, man. I I, I feel like it there, hit more in 2004. Just... We're going to have to talk about this both years. I mean, yes, well, I don't know if we have to talk about it both years. Like, 2004 is the... Chappelle show was so important, we have to talk about it both years. We also need to talk about playing Texas Hold'em in 2004. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, Discovery of the show, the movie Rounders. Uh, 2004 was the best season of Chappelle's show, but 2003 was the most shocking season of Chappelle's show because it was like... <laughs> like like we knew who Dave Chappelle was, but we wouldn't we, have seen any of his stand-up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we definitely probably seen Half Baked. Uh, I, I I recall thinking of his guy from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Oh my God! I don't know. If, I've never seen Robin Hood Men in Tights. I don't think. What? It's a classic movie. That's more of your level of humor than mine. Wow. You, I really love the hey, I that joke. That was a big, big one of mine at this time. Uh, but it comes out in the first episode with Clayton Bigsby. Clayton Bigsby, the black white supremacist. Like I remember I mean, Zach is... Muncy telling me about it the next day. He'd watched and I didn't, and then he told me about it, and I was just like, "What the fuck are you talking about, dude?" <laughs> I, I like, feel like I missed the first be network TV. 
I feel like there was a Sonics game during the first show or something like that that I missed it, but I caught up very quickly after that. I mean, this was not an era where you could just DVR something, but, uh, you know, it probably played on Comedy Central like every two hours or so. No, you, you had to work a little bit to see it, right? I mean, but it definitely was like, it wasn't like somebody showed me a video of it. Zach Muncy described to me the sketch in thorough detail because that was the only way I was going to hear about it in 2003. The whole season, whereas, like, there were no real misses. He had the, like, super high level. Misses. Let's, let's, let's be clear. But the the percentage is high for sketch comedy. I mean, we were introduced to Tyrone Biggums in 2003. Like, Wu-Tang Financial. The Player Haters Ball. Oh, I love the Player Haters Ball. Like, that is... But also the hip-hop that he had on. He had the Dead Prez theme song, which you hated, of course. Um, I didn't hate... <laughs> like that song but he he had that and all the guests that he had on i think the next season he had common and kanye on yes that uh, was when, the uh march 3rd 2004 episode two brothers from the city of wind which they recorded and put on the common record b it was just their Chappelle show performance uh, <clears throat> but it was like de la soul talib Kweli. like the level of hip-hop was extremely high that was on Chappelle's show at that time. Yeah. I mean, it. I, I just could. I don't know if there's anything that like has so immediately been so influential in our sense of humor. Does that make sense? No, absolutely not. Right. Like it, it was. I'm telling you, the second season was even more important though. Oh, because the, sec- yeah, the second peak. season was when he had Charlie Murphy on. And it was like, yes. Charlie Murphy literally just like, you get Killer Mike on in the seventh episode. Charlie Murphy changed our lives, though. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know if I go that far. It, but legit, <laughs> I remember after that happened, it was like, Chappelle's show stopped being a thing that you could miss. Like, you had, I think it was on Thursday nights. Appointment television. <laughs> Apparently it started out on Wednesday nights, according to this, because... Uh, although there was not a Sonic's home game, it was a road game on January twenty second, two thousand three. Every single sketch is an iconic sketch at this point, though. Like, especially because I mean, not every single sketch. I'm like, telling you, Dave Chappelle had, like he had the wherewithal to just cut it short, though, right? Like, it's not yes. like he had three decades of sketches. It was two seasons and only twelve episodes or whatever per season. Like, it was. It was such, oh my god, Roots outtakes. <laughs> it was just like, it was the perfect like encapsulation of what sketch comedy should be. Yeah. I mean, and, I'm not going to say anything negative about it. God, oh, it's so good. I mean, just it was just shocking. It was like so different from everything else on television. It's so good. Uh, I don't feel like there's a lot of movies we need to discuss from 2003. Uh, maybe old school? Okay, so old school was 2003. This was the beginning yes. of... We, you were in college. I was going into college. Also, Elf is a movie we need to discuss now. <laughs> um, the, Wait, old, Elf was 2003? Absolutely, it was. Okay. But it does... Big year for like, Will Ferrell. You, we haven't you, talked about Will Ferrell at all yet. You watch, like, you look at a lot of movies that were bigger than these movies, but, like, old school, for us as going into college or being in college at that time, was a big deal. It was a bigger deal than Finding Nemo or whatever was for us, or The Lord of the Rings Return of the King. It was, like, old school was, like, oh, this is for us, you know? It was, like, this is comedy, similar, honestly, to the, like, Chappelle show arc. Whereas, like, there's something, which is hilarious, because these were probably all, like, mid-30s to 40-year-old dudes doing it, but it felt so youthful, what they were doing. Yeah. And it was also, like, we had watched Will Ferrell for SNL in a number of years, really thought he was hilarious there, and then now seeing him make the transition to movies with those two, I mean, that's a huge year. I remember you arguing in the early 2000s, before he became a... uh, big film actor that Will Ferrell was like a top five SNL cast member. And I remember like kind of chafing at that idea. Wow. How does it feel to be so wrong? I No, I definitely was right. In hindsight, we also had kill bill volume one was 2003. Uh, like movies that I remember, this is like the first generation that I really remember, like 
going i had like a consistent girlfriend or whatever and it was going to the movies and going to see kill bill i had already stand pulp fiction in 2003 i probably we talked about those gift certificates that we would get from our like sort of aunt sort of family friend to tower records r.i.p and we might have gotten it to blockbuster one year or something but i know that we all went us you and me and katie and chris went to i'm pretty sure it was blockbuster in Tequila or whatever and i bought pulp fiction the like the like box set version of Pulp Fiction. And I was like, oh, this is actually the only movie that I care about because I'm a white 17-year-old kid <laughs> in the sort of suburbs. And I was like, yeah, this is what I care about now. It's Pulp Fiction. And then Kill Bill coming out as like a return for Quentin Tarantino and watching and being like, this is cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me you didn't use the word cinema. That's that's what I did because I was a 17, 18-year-old white kid in the suburbs. I definitely like was talking to my girlfriend at the time. I'm like, notice how he uses this repetitive thing to like demonstrate this point. This, this is all bad. <laughs> Checks out. Uh, also, I graduated from high school yep. uh, at uh, Highland Community College. I remember being so hot that day. It was very hot. I was on so now I remember your graduation better than I remember my I graduation, the actual graduation, ceremony. I think. I think I was watching Kyle during your graduation. Hmm. I was just like, I'm good. I'll watch the baby. I don't care. Where was your graduation? I, I can't remember. I, I feel like you it was at Highland Stadium. You don't know where it was at? I think it was at Highland Stadium. Weird. I mean, it's been a long time. It's been almost 20 years now. Still, that's kind of weird. It's been 17 years for me, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Do, do you? Yeah, I had the like all red cap and gown tie high school baby. Uh, I just remember like there there was the like it was really like celebratory graduating high school, and I was like, hey, we'll all be back here at Highland Community College in like six months um, <laughs> as we continue our tie high school education. Home of Brian Scalabrini. Uh. <laughs> But it was like it was legit a hundred degrees while we were going in line, and then in my history slash I remember I had Washington State history with him, uh, Mr. Minio, who we always we always loved, and he was like old school Italian history teacher. He loved like fifties sixties jazz music. You're just like it's like classic like what you want from a history teacher, and he gave a commencement speech, basically like protesting the war that had just started in Iraq. And it was like, we were inspired. We were sweaty as hell, but we were inspired for that one day. I feel like some of the adults were upset about it. Oh, there there were murmurs. There were murmurs in the crowd. There (laughs) people were supporting the troops at the time. I read a thing in the Wikipedia where it's like a show that, that, Pearl Jam played in 2003 and Eddie Vedder like talked badly about the war in Iraq and it was like people started booing and like (laughs) were angry at them. It was a weird, weird time where now I feel like if it was a similar situation, I I remember going into a drama class of all classes and they were televising the like first couple days of the war, right? And being furious about it as an 18 year old. I'd become a lot more furious about it in 2004. 17-year-old, Seven, for the record. As a 17-year-old. So I remember becoming way more furious about it in 2004 uh, when I got really political. But <laughs> watching that on the news and my drama teacher just like being so disgusted and shaking her, shaking her head. Uh, I, and there were definitely protests that were happening in 2003. It was like this was the defining cultural moment of our lives. I don't feel like it was that defining for college students. I don't know. Maybe because we just weren't forced to watch it in the same way. I don't know. You don't think I mean, the Iraq war was defining? I mean, I wouldn't say it's not defining, but first off, 9-11 was defining. I feel like it was, more... It was a big deal on campus. Like, more, like, protest and more art came out of that war than almost any other event of our lifetimes. Possibly. There, there was something about it where it was like we were all able to rally around that moment in a way that people have never done in the Trump era, you know, like 
the the I mean I listen to like Bright Eyes often. He's talking about like the Iraq War, right? Still, I'm white. I'm wide awake. It's morning. It's like <clears throat> there are songs in there that are informed by that. And the, the Boulevard of Broken Dreams, like the American Idiot album, it's like this is informed by that that war. And that's starting. And I can't think of any other time that there was that much art that was about a singular event where, for whatever reason, people really rallied around it in 2003 and being upset about it, right? Like, there were there were protests. And there have been protests, obviously, since then about various other things. But it doesn't feel like artistically and creatively that people have really rallied, rallied behind it that much. Okay. And also... In no other era but 2003 has anybody rapped that they're the red, they're the rubber band man. Wild as the Taliban. <laughs> it's safe to say yes. What a year. Wait, also, before we leave 2003, should we talk about the fact that the Postal Service album is really enti- almost entirely about pandemics, it seems oh like? Oh, my God. Really, the the defining social distancing record of all time. It it was recorded by sending music, Jamie Tamborello, Dintel, and Ben Gibbard, obviously, sending music back and forth between each other, not even in the same place. But you've got the song, We Will Become Silhouettes. Not exactly similar, but you, people are trapped in their homes in that song. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have noticed that this you know, relates to uh, to the current time. But I also think that the song This Place is a Prison has some some elements as well. Interesting. I also think the song The District Sleeps Alone Tonight has some elements oh. as well too. Oh, <laughs> I didn't, I, Haunting I didn't stuff. Think about that. Wow. Haunting. Uh, <clears throat> let's see here. Oh it's not a party if it happens every night. Pretending there's glamour in candelabra while you're drinking by candlelight. I wow, like I'm that. literally doing that right now. There you go. Wow. Postal Service knew somehow. I don't know how. Ben Gibbard. Man. Visionary. I've got my rain showers candle right here. I've got my rain here. I'm talking about 2003. Ben Gibbard, you predicted this exact moment of the Pelican cast. <laughs>